Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. My name is Reed. I am one of the staff folks here. I have been on staff since 2008. Um, It's good to be with you all. If you're new, we're really glad you're here. You're entering into a series on Isaiah and also some minor prophets and also some testimonies. Uh, We're in Isaiah tonight. Uh, This is going to be Derek did last week on Isaiah 6, and it was wild and weird and awesome and otherworldly because that's how Isaiah 6 is. In the introduction, I talked a little bit about this kind of arc that the prophets follow that begins with an indictment. Their messages usually begin with calling out some problems. So hope you are here for fun tonight because that's what you're getting. This is... This is, by the way, this is one title, and then there's two more. (laughs) You were afraid. You made the moment everything. You gave away your awe. You forgot your calling. You doubled down. And the ungods shall utterly vanish, or prophecy needs place, or ARC part one indictment. You've heard this a bit so far. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, these flying weirdo angels. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the room was filled with smoke. The house was filled with smoke. So says Isaiah 6. Isaiah's vision of this absolutely unfathomable otherworldliness of God. And I will be honest with you, I would be perfectly happy to live in this passage all the time and do nothing but preach this one chapter all semester long. Because this sort of like transcendent mystery vision stuff is where I kind of feel comfortable. Um, But at some point, we have to pull our heads out of the heavens and come down to earth, and at some point, a vision of God has to translate into action in the world. At some point, God has to ask, who will go for us? And at some point, someone has to answer, send me. And as Derek said last week, it was exactly at this point that Isaiah spoke up, send me, and then we turn immediately to Isaiah 7 and get this straight off the bat. And it happened in the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Aram, with Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem. Blech. This, <laughs> this is why I would rather live in the vision of the throne room all my life. We go from the ecstasy of the spiritual plane to the drudgery of history. Raiden is probably the only person in this room that is excited by this sentence. I hear these names and these places, and I am undone. Literally. Waking 
from a dream. We leave Isaiah 6 and we just get harshly yanked down into Isaiah's, Isaiah 7's world of time and place. And all of it is so strange. You think the seraphim are weird? Ahaz, Jotham, Judah, Rezin, Aram, Pekah, Ramalia? What are, are these people? Are these places? Is this food? We, they're people and places. We don't know them or the things that happened around them. Do we care? We read this, our eyes kind of, if you're reading this and you're like morning Devo, like your eyes glaze over, or you get very confused, and then what do you do? We either close our Bibles and head to breakfast, or skip ahead to whichever bits of the thus says the Lord parts feel like personally applicable, you know, the stuff that really tugs at your heartstrings. You just get to that stuff. We just do our devos with that, and we move on. But uprooting a prophetic word from its time and space uh, the time and space that it inhabits creates a problem. It is like this. It is like yanking, you guys know the cartoon Garfield? It is like yanking Garfield out of the frame entirely and leaving John Arbuckle to speak only to himself, like this. There is this amazing website called Garfield minus Garfield. And it is a perfect picture of what it means to yank something out of its context. Why so gloomy, buddy? You have a lot to be grateful for. What? <laughs> we know nothing about gloom or thankful or grateful. Here's another one. Live, laugh, love. Words to live by. In what context is this being spoken? This is like when we take, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. This is that. Okay, here's another one. I made a mistake. <laughs> what? What mistake did you make? Was there a consequence? What happened? Next one. Burp, 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 burp. I got to get a new clock. What? What clock? There's no clock. And then because the prophets uh, aren't just um, people of words, but also people of weirdo dramatic actions, I had to throw in this one. <laughs> what? When you yank the words out of their boring historical setting and places, we get the meaning uh, completely wrong or we greatly diminish its power or else we just lose any sense of meaning entirely. And at the very least, we're just throwing out a huge chunk of the verses that actually make up Isaiah. Why not engage it instead? Prophecy needs place. It needs time. It needs history, which can all be very boring to hear about. But tonight, I'm going to give it my best so that we might not end up all semester like Garfield minus Garfield. So here is the story behind and throughout Isaiah in six parts. The story of Ahaz, who's the king, and Judah, the kingdom, the nation, the place, uh, which I want to tell while also acknowledging some things about us along the way. 
so that we might see that even though our names and our places are very different, our story is maybe closer to theirs than we might imagine. So, part one, you were afraid. <laughs> this is too good. You were afraid. Ahaz and Judah, they were afraid, and that is what we would have been too. Two foreign enemies banding together to threaten them, and then like a white shark slipping through dark waters behind a pair of eels, a third much greater superpower was waiting to just devour everyone. For Ahaz and Judah, there was no way out. And so, Isaiah says, the heart of the people of Judah sway like the trees of the forest before the wind. That's how they're feeling in a no-win, total annihilation situation. They're shaking in their boots. And their choice was between getting wrecked by the two eels or else joining teams with the great shark who was as wicked as they came. So if we're going to condemn Ahaz for doing the wrong thing, spoiler alert, he's going to do the wrong thing. Let's not say that Ahaz was purely wicked. Of course, he wasn't perfect, but like anyone facing their own annihilation, he just wanted to survive. And it wasn't just, it isn't just that we would have been afraid if we were in Judah's situation or position. It's that even though you and I, we are not nations and powers, we have, I think, indeed been in their position in some sense. And we have ourselves been afraid. Think about it. Who among us hasn't felt the fear of being in over our heads, fearing that we might lose ourselves completely or destroy something beyond repair or make a mistake that we just can't come back from? And we feel faced with only two outcomes. On the one hand, failure or scarcity or suffering or shame. And on the other hand, compromise of our calling of our values. Like maybe you made a mistake one time and its consequences were threatening to spin out of control. You could see it coming. But if you just said this one thing in this one certain way, or if you just told the truth except for this one part, then you could actually spare everyone a lot of hurt. Or maybe you had suffered some embarrassment and your reputation was threatening to collapse, but if you just found a way to shift responsibility or even find another person on whom you could cast a little bit of shame, then you'd be out of the spotlight and you could clean things up behind the scenes later. Or maybe you were about to lose the one thing you couldn't possibly stand to lose, as Emily talked about on Sunday, which by the way, absolute perfection. Thank you, that was incredible. The one thing you couldn't possibly stand to lose, like a relationship or a status or potential or some material thing, but if you just held a little tighter or controlled things a tad more, then you could keep everything happy and whole, keep those plates spinning. With the end of you, doom on one side and compromise on the other, what do you do? But God told Ahaz, and told me and told you, it was going to be okay. 
Watch yourself and be tranquil. Do not fear and let your heart not quail because of these two smoking tails of firebrands. Those two nations joining up against you. Don't worry about them. He asked you not to worry for the day, not to react at all to the twin fears, failure on one side, compromise on the other, but simply to be still and to trust because all of time, not just this one moment or this one war, all of time is in his hands. Even if, yes, this one thing you couldn't stand to lose was lost, because what God doesn't do is prevent things breaking. Even if that, all would be made right in the course of time, because what God does do is take all things and make them well and whole and right. God was just asking for stillness and trust. And I say that like, oh yeah, just asking for stillness and trust. No big deal. It is so hard to choose inaction, to wait, to do, in effect, nothing when you are facing your own demise. And God knew that you, Ahaz, and you, Truman friend, could only conceive of reacting out of your fear when it's so overwhelming, because that's what we do. So God told you, if you trust not, you shall not hold firm. If you don't wait, if you don't faithfully watch for me, if you do all you can to ensure that nothing goes wrong, you will only make this worse the bottom will give out. The center will not hold. Don't go that way. But Ahaz and we were too afraid. Our faith was small. So we did what we do. And we kind of freaked out. And we made this one moment everything. With these eels of Aram and Ephraim threatening to devour Judah, Ahaz turned to the great white shark of Assyria for help. He went to the king of Assyria, that great power that violently, and, I, and we're going to get to this when we get to Jonah, violently ruled over the ancient world for a long time. And Ahaz, king in Judah, said, I am your servant and your son. And in doing so, he did nothing more or less than what many of us in our weakness have done in our own little kingdoms. When the chips were down, when they are down, we tend to reach for whatever power is most obvious and whatever power is closest to hand that can ensure that we will make it. Hoarding, gossip, manipulation, judgment, these are all convenient and efficient powers that can solve many of our problems in a pinch. Our short-sightedness makes us do it. We have a problem now. These nations are going to kill us now. We are done for. Our dignity has been offended. Our bank account is taking a hit, lower than we'd like it to be. Our shortcomings have been exposed. And we look for a solution now, in the powers of the world, Assyria and all that other stuff, they're quick and efficient. So Assyria agreed, of course, to Ahaz's request. Let me be your kid. 
And these eels of Aram and Ephraim, what I thought was a threat, gobbled up. Not a problem. Wow, that's awesome. It actually worked. And now Judah has one of the world's mightiest superpowers on its side. Pretty cool. But at what cost? Abraham Joshua Heschel. Isaiah asked Ahaz what Isaiah was asking Ahaz to believe was that it was neither Pekah nor Rezin nor even the mighty Tiglath-Pileser, that's the king of Assyria, who governed history. Those guys don't govern history. The world was in the hands of God and it was folly to be terrified by these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Those powers were destined for destruction and even the might of Assyria would not last forever. The king put his trust in the art of politics, carrying out his plan disregarding God's plan. Again, we are not kings and queens, but I think we do this. God's power to make things right, you know how that power works? It works slowly over a long time, and it is hard to detect. So it is easy then for us to set faith aside and opt for the powers that makes the most sense and that is the most readily available. It's like we live all day in the burning sun, frantically rushing around, gathering up weeds all day, making shade for ourselves, and it keeps dying and getting burned up, and we're running around dying, trying to put out all the fires ourselves, while God is asking us, plant this oak seed, tend it, wait, and hope. This will be better and it will take time. We are people who easily forget context, and not just like biblically, like Garfield minus Garfield, but the context even of our own days and lives. We constantly think this one moment is everything, forgetting that each moment exists within a day, and each day within a year, and each year within a life, a semester, exists within a college degree, which exists within four to six years or longer if you're Derek. But for most of you, within four to six years in your 20s. Your 20s are a decade within your career. Your career is a season within your life. We think that career is everything. It's not. Leanne's grandpa, Harley, he's 99 and he has been retired for more years than he worked. That's some perspective. When days of marriage are hard, I remember that he and Leanne's grandma, Harley and Marion, they have been married for 76 years. When I think it's hard, they've been married for 76 years. Incredibly happy and sweet, by the way. And even the whole of our lives, your whole life is not everything. It exists in context. We exist within the histories of our families and of our communities that come before us and they live on after us. As Annie Dillard said, even each generation just gets one turn to be alive. We forget this. And we make this one moment of fear and anxiety and desperation everything. But the God that we say we want to trust spans all contexts before and after and under and above and through all of this, holds it all in his hands. So what is Assyria going to do that we should give our allegiance to it? 
And what is a retirement account going to do that we should sell our souls for it? Living out of fear in his historical moment, Ahaz made himself a son to Assyria, an alliance against which God warned him, and the ripple effects, as these things tend to go, were greater than he anticipated. Like he was thinking this would just be a smart political arrangement. It became way more than a political arrangement. Because once he started walking around in his newfound Assyrian-insured world, detached from the God who lovingly and carefully shapes and guides all of history, Ahaz gave away his awe to new wonders. For they are full of Eastern things and soothsayers like the Philistines, For they shall be shamed, ashamed of the cult trees after which you lusted, and be disgraced by the gardens that you have chosen. And his land is filled with idols. To his handiwork he bows down to what his fingers made. There is, understandably, a disconnect for us here, okay? Who do we know that is building idols out of wood and stone and doing their quiet time, bowing down before them each night before they go to bed? Like, we have no struggle with pagan nature worship, I don't know anybody who's doing that. This from Annie. God used to rage at the Israelites for frequenting sacred groves. I wish I could find one, she says. Now we are no longer primitive. We're smart. We live in 2023. We've had an enlightenment. We have science. We went to the moon. We have computers. We are no longer primitive. Now the whole world seems not holy. We have drained the light from the boughs in the sacred grove and snuffed it in the high places and along the banks of sacred streams. We as a people have moved from pantheism to panatheism. It's difficult to undo your own damage, to recall to our presence that which we have asked to leave. It is hard to desecrate a grove and change your mind. What she is saying is that we've removed gods of all kinds, fairy tales, Zeus, Poseidon, even perhaps Yahweh himself from the world of reality that we will accept. Nothing is sacred anywhere. Everything is just a thing, just a symbol. But the truth is that just because the gods have lost their arms and their legs and their lightning bolts doesn't mean that they're gone. It just means that they're harder to recognize. And we still bow before the works of our fingers. We just don't make them out of wood and stone anymore. Instead, we make them out of ideals and ideas and fantasies. Democracy, economy, celebrity, progress, might. Some of these you have met already in your life. Some of them not yet, but you will. So let me tell you. Our sense of awe and wonder is a precious thing. It is a gift that we must give away to something. You don't get to keep it. You have to give it to something. And when we set God aside, we give it away to false things, like these things, democracy, economy, celebrity, progress, might, these ideals and ideas. We grant these things insane power in our lives to shape and guide all that we become. And the inevitable result of this is that, of course, we forget who we are and we forget our calling. 
I am afraid to say that this part of the story does not need much translation. All of them lust for bribes and chase illicit payments. They do not defend the orphan, and the widow's case does not touch them. And what's more, what is robbed from the poor is in your homes. Ahaz and the whole company of people that God rescued out of Egypt, now worshiping other things, had lost the plot. As a nation of wandering, rescued slaves, core to their identity was supposed to be this. This is from Deuteronomy. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. This is hard for us. When we hear justice or that God is just, we most often think of punishment. God is just, so he must punish you. Justice in our American way of life means tit for tat, retribution. The scales must be balanced. What is taken away must be paid back. And this shallow understanding of justice makes us deaf to the raging of the prophets when they're carrying on about orphans and widows. After all, who cares? And I'm echoing Heschel from the other week here. Who cares about the plight of the one lonely old man in the nursing home when we've got cosmic scales to balance with our theologizing? But what the Bible most often has in mind when it speaks of justice is restoration, to put things in their right place, that the vulnerable and the marginalized are taken care of and elevated to a protected and respected place in the community. Because if you don't, it's not going to happen. That is the injustice, that those people are left needy, out in the cold, outside the city gate, away from a community that will care for them and know them and nurture them. Who are those people in our community? Do we even care? Briggs and Jude, are they in here? They went to the nursing home every week this summer and they played bingo with old people who were out of their minds and like stripping off their clothes in the middle of bingo. And it was hilarious and ridiculous and it was also justice. What we often miss is that justice and worship are inextricably tied together in the mind of the prophets. There is no such thing as worship if you're singing on Sunday but not looking out for the marginalized or lonely or outcast or vulnerable at any other time. This is why Isaiah and Micah and Amos all say things like, why need I all your sacrifices, says the Lord. Your new moons, your appointed times, I utterly despise. They have become a burden to me. I cannot bear them. When you spread your palms, throw up my hands, praise you again and again. I turn my eyes away from you. I don't want to see it. Though you abundantly pray, I do not listen. Hear me. This is not God like denouncing or pre-renouncing Judaism's sacrificial system. Like, yeah, a preview of worshiping in spirit and in truth. 
That's not what this is. This is God saying, any traditions of worship that are not attended by justice for the orphan and widow and foreigner and poor are meaningless. God wants nothing to do with meaningless gestures. We say, and perhaps Ada has also said, God, I want to know you more. We sing it. I want to know you more. We sing it earnestly with our eyes tight shut and our hands in the air, and we think that that's it. If I can just make myself feel enough, I want to know you more, then that's it, because it's about relationship, right? Jeremiah says, yeah, but that relationship can't be removed from what I'm talking about. Did not your father, he's speaking of a king who is actually righteous, did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? He did them. He elevated people and took care of them to where they were supposed to be. Righteousness, he made sure that things were fair and equitable between people. That's what that means. Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Is this not, is not this to know me? You want to know me? Is not this to know me, declares the Lord. And if you're going to do the whole Jesus thing on me, just go back to Luke 4 that I quoted last week, where Jesus begins his whole ministry by declaring justice and liberty for the oppressed and the poor. Or go to the freaking sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. I didn't know you because you weren't taking care of people who were on the outside. When we set God aside and sit in awe of what our hands have made, look at our democracy, look at our entertainment, look at our money, look at our military, we will inevitably set aside our calling to be a body, God's hands and feet to the needy. And it works the other way too, vice versa. When we set aside our calling to be Christ's body to those in need, we will set God aside. <clears throat> Man, ouch. Things really went off the rails for Ahaz <laughs> and for us. We are afraid. We make the moment everything. We give away our awe. We forget our calling. And things fall apart. Is Assyria exploited Judah for what they could get out of them. And then it all came crumbling down. That alliance, guess what? Didn't last forever. The powers that we thought would make us safe and comfortable forever, they can't do it. Eventually, the promises run out, and we're left with nothing. And sometimes, <laughs> we double down anyway. <clears throat> as global powers tend to do, Assyria flipped from protector to menace. And as kings tend to do, Ahaz died. And when Hezekiah took over, a new chance to turn again in trust to the God of all history opened up. But as it tends to do, fear persisted, and with the first power, Assyria, now unwilling to guarantee Judah's safety and actually being a threat, Hezekiah simply turned to the next one, Egypt. Boy, there's some irony. Egypt would do just as well against Assyria as Assyria had done against Aram and Ephraim. The story repeats itself. And God remains as grieved as he has been. Woe, you wayward sons, said the Lord, devising counsel, not from me, who head down to Egypt, haven't asked my word, to shelter in Pharaoh's stronghold and take refuge in Egypt's, Egypt's shade? That's, those are God's words. That's what God is supposed to be, is the stronghold and the shade. 
And here, almost finally, we're getting to the end, is the feeling that I'm left with. Will we ever get the message? Maybe not. For you said, we have sealed a covenant with death. Oh, with Sheol have made pact. Yeah, we'll take the abyss. We'll take death. We'll take nothingness. That's fine. We'll take that. What will it take for us to stop making these covenants with death, to stop relying on every tool and power we have to save ourselves, no matter the cost to our worship or our calling, What will it take for us to stop running from Assyria to Egypt or from gossip to judgment, from judgment to slander, from indifference to bitterness, from bitterness to vengefulness, from vengefulness to violence? What will it take? Like every four years, are we doomed to look like a bunch of idiots and get worked up in an insane frenzy over presidential candidates because we cannot trust? And it's not even every four years. It's every three years because we are stupid and we have election cycles that are absurdly long or like okay forget the nation how about us every day are we doomed to be paralyzed with anxiety over what everyone thinks of us because we cannot trust it will not hold firm it won't hold firm is what God will keep saying and he will keep saying as Isaiah says in returning and rest you shall be saved quietness and in trust shall be your strength and you said no we will flee upon horses and he said in returning and rest you shall be saved in quietness and in trust shall be your strength and you said no we will flee upon horses and he said in returning and rest you shall be saved in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. And you said, we have sealed a covenant with death, with Sheol have made pact. Will it ever end? And then in Isaiah 30 comes one of the more shocking statements you can find in the scriptures. After all the resistance And trust me, folks, there's a lot. I read 30 chapters. After all the resistance and all the death covenants and all the insane insistence on we will flee and we will not hear it, there's a part where it talks about how their houses have been torn down. They're like, we'll just build other houses. We'll we'll cut our stones this time and we'll make them more secure. Or like, oh, like your, your, your oaks fell down. We'll get cedars. That's cool. We'll build the houses out of that. After all of this, what is God's response to the, no, we will flee. No, we will flee. We are rebellious. We are sinful. We don't want you. We're running away. What is God's response? Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you? (laughs) And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him because you will not stop running away will not accept God's invitation to be still and rest and be saved because of that God will do what leave give up 
throw up his hands and say, I've had it. No. He will wait. I'll wait. I'll be right here. I got all day. To one for whom there is no time, he's got all the time. For one who holds all time at the same time, it can never be too late to stop, to rest, to trust, to be rescued, to do nothing, and just be saved. God will wait to be gracious because he is grace itself. God will wait to show mercy because he is mercy itself. And God will be lifted up. And when God is lifted up, not only will he set us right, he will bring down all that has deceived us or made us afraid. All that is false, both within us and outside us, will be destroyed. And the ungods shall utterly vanish. And the Lord of hosts shall be raised up in justice, and the Holy One hallowed in righteousness. And the covenant with death will be undone. And your covenant with death shall be canceled. Your pact with Sheol shall not come about. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so now, may we be unafraid, and may we trust in the God of all times, and may we be in awe of God alone, and may we live lives worthy of the calling we have received, and may we repent and rest and be still and be rescued, and may death be swallowed up forever. Let's pray. It has been, Lord. You have swallowed up death. You have swallowed up death forever. And we have been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved son, and it is very hard to remember that sometimes. Would you please help us to be still, to be quiet? to trust that you are guiding and shaping and delivering us that your grace is at work in us always shaping and would you help us Lord sooner rather than later to yield to say okay and to stop being afraid Amen.